Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, Guru listeners, it's Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. The week ending 2nd of November 2018. And Mark, I think you want to jump in because you, you think the 1st of November is an auspicious occasion. What um, what do you want to talk about that? Mention about that. Hang on a sec, I've got you. <laughs> I'll put you on mute. <laughs> Far away again, Mark. I had you on mute. You're, you're <laughs> controlling the uh, microphones. Um, yes, the 1st of November, Brendan, it's a very auspicious day. It represents, we've, we've had the... the uh, uh, 50 week celebration the 50 episode celebration but now yeah. we um we actually have exactly one year our first episode was went uh published on the internet our first podcast on the 1st of november 2017 um and um and geez uh you know i don't think i've stuck at anything as long in my whole life don't say that to Kate. Um, it's, it's been a little bit longer with your lovely wife, hasn't it, Mark? Or has it? You, you tell me. <laughs> no, no. We've, yes. we've, interestingly enough, um, we've just planned our um, 25th wedding anniversary next year. But um, outside of marriage, um, your this relationship is my next most long, you know. One year, Mark, it has gone very quick, hasn't it, one year? Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it, Mark? Um, well, I've... Speaking of fun, it's been a little bit of a stressful week so far, Mark. I have, we haven't spoke about this off air before our before our recording. Mark, it's um, Sophie, my youngest, has just finished sitting her first VCE examination, so the end of high school here in Australia. So the exams that you do at the very end of your education before you potentially, if you manage to get in, um, head off to university, Mark. So she had her English exam today. This morning, the first of, I think, six that she has to do. and um, I heard, yeah, a, I heard was, a rumour, Brendan, that it was a very hard exam. Um, so, Well, the, the, I didn't realise that they had – so they basically they have to write three – it's a three-hour examination, basically three essays uh, that they write, one an hour, obviously, and they're based on the books or the the, the uh, media that they study during the year. And I thought that probably they'd select, you know, between three or four books that are chosen statewide because it varies between the states here in Australia, doesn't it, Mark? So, um, but no, there's about 15 or 20 books that could be chosen um, and the teachers themselves can choose at which school, what what textbooks they decide to or novels they study. So um, so the books that were studied, or was one book and one movie, Mark, and um, the book was The Crucible, um, which is quite a tricky, hard one, I think, um, but she... I think she got her head around it okay. And the film was a classic Hitchcock. It was Rear Window, Mark, um, that they studied at her school. So I'm, um, I enjoyed watching Rear Window again um, during the year when she first started looking at um, the movie. So, yeah, and um, apparently, well, I had a bit of a chat to when I got home from work and um, she survived and um, she thinks she went okay. And... Um, when she says, oh, she thinks she went okay, she, she does very well, so I'm hoping that she did do very well. But, yeah, pretty stressful last night and, um, yeah, poor old Annie had to spend a little bit of time with her because she couldn't get to sleep last night. But the first one's under the belt and um, a few more to go, so hopefully be, she'll be right. And speaking of rear window, I just put my car in, Mark, for um, fixing because somebody ran up the rear end of my car. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell you that. Um, that was a couple of weeks ago, but just a little shunt on the way home where um, there was a bit of a traffic jam, a little um, just five kilometre an hour little jam um, near, near where we go over the bridge at the river and um, somebody um, ran up my back end and um, damaged the um, damaged the bumper and um, pretty minor damage. I've been driving the car around but um, it got put in for its fix today and hopefully I'll pick it up in about three or four days and interestingly the guy who ran up the, my rear end was um, – 
he, he gave me his business card and he's a chauffeur. So, um, and it was a bit of a, it was a prestige um, Jaguar um, that he had and um, it did a bit of a scrape to his front, front of his car. I mean, because it was his fault, um, there was no, no um, excess I had to pay and um, it was all, it's all been done for free under my insurance um, because I'll claim off his insurance. So that's, that's good. So I'm, I'm driving around with a little um, free hike at the moment, Mark. Um, so I'm enjoying that. So yeah, that's my week. But a little bit, um, bit of excitement. Bit of excitement. What have you been up to this week? Well, I there's, we've had a few interesting things happen. But I wanted to just um, I, I I had a case today where I was um, brought some mushrooms to identify to decide whether they were um, dangerous to dogs because uh, this particular client had seen her dogs eating these mushrooms and um and we did manage to uh we, we obviously um have more caveats and uh warnings and disclaimers on any advice we give about mushrooms than pretty much anything else but we did manage to identify these uh, mushrooms as uh, um uh, uh, brown ink caps um the Copronellus disseminatus, or maybe even um, probably more likely to be micaceous. But the reason I mention it, Brendan, is first of all, we're going to talk about uh, some other mushrooms later on. But yeah. the interesting thing about um, the ink caps, particularly the glistening ink cap I discovered today, was that they are edible in the early stages of their growth. So they're not dangerous to the dogs. But if you do eat them um, and drink alcohol at the same time, they have the same effect, a very similar effect, as um, the medication antabuse. They um, interfere with the processing of the alcohol and they make you very sick. So um, you, these um, mushrooms uh, cause a, a, it's a particular recognised poisoning called coprene poisoning where you are not poisoned by the mushroom unless you have a beer with it, in which case you get this nausea and red flushing and you feel quite sick. Mark, you're a font of knowledge as usual, but I do worry um, that you probably know a little bit too much about these magic mushrooms than you should know, Mark. Um, I'm a little bit suspicious and pity we don't have video here. I'd like to see whether you're flushed red at the moment while you're drinking that beer. Because I wouldn't be surprised at all, Mark. Yeah. It does explain a lot um, of my red flushing. Yes, it may. Now we need to um, we need to say hello to our sponsors, don't we, Mark? Do you want to do a shout out to them because we haven't said hi to them for a while? Well, I, I do, Brendan, and um, I want to uh, first of all do the our usual sing out to uh, Small Animal nutrition the australian distributors of oxbow products um, and uh, thank them for their support and um, just reiterate that they're uh, you know that i want to thank them directly and personally because we use their products literally every day in uh, in our practice and um, and there's no doubt they um, raise the standard having those products to use uh, with our small herbivores um, it definitely raises the standard of both husbandry and medicine for those animals so um, I just want to make sure that we do have a, a, a little mention of their support both directly for this podcast but also for the profession in Australia and um, here yes I'll go you're keep going you're on a you're on a roll Mark keep going. Oh, no take over I've got to catch my breath <laughs> Yes, um, well, I agree totally with that. They've been fantastic and they're very good products. So that's why we have them as sponsors, Mark. And um, having said that, their sponsorship does run out soon. <laughs> so we may have somebody, we may even be able to snatch somebody else to help um, support our podcast um so that would be fantastic and if you listener as a as a um as an interested listener would like to support us you can go to patreon.com vet gurus or go to our website and um think about giving us a dollar or two to help fund our hosting that would be great so enough of the plug for um our great sponsors and um our podcast itself. Let's jump on to some news, Mark. We've only have three this week, but I'm going to take the first one because I want to know about T-Rex and T-Rex's puny little arms, Mark. I've always wondered about why T-Rex has these puny little arms. And 
funny you should ask that, Mark, um, because they a little uh, an undergraduate student of geology and a professor of biology at Stockton University in New Jersey, USA, looked at the limbs of the domestic turkey and the American alligator. And what has that got to do with T-Rex? Well, hang in there, Mark. Um, They'll compare how the limbs rotate and how they can use these limbs and how they function. And they did some great little 3D models of the bones and then try and worked out with the with the flesh that they then put onto those bones in the model in um, trying to work out how the joints work. And they realised that the elbow joint, for turkeys and alligators at least, is much more complex and, and both bones in the forearm not only pivot around the joint but go sideways towards the upper arm bone and, and down as the elbow's flexed as well. So a lot more flexible than you think. So how does this relate to our little T-Rex? Well, I think their summary was pretty good in that T-Rex was a clapper, not a slapper, Mark. A clapper, not a slapper. And that means that T-Rex would keep its hands folded inwards like they're clapping, hence a clapper, as opposed to facing downwards and out as if they were slapping. So their summary was that the findings suggested that T-Rex's arms may have been able to rotate the palm of the hand inward and upwards so that the palm would face the chest when the elbow was flexed. And that's where they stopped because their next comment was what, why the T-Rex would do this and what, and what use it has remains a mystery <laughs> since we can't actually see the dinosaur in action. So um, um, I was really loving their story until I got to that sentence with it saying that they don't know what it all means. Um, but I think that's what happens with a lot of studies, don't you, Mark? You open up a can of worms. Science. Potential. Science. Science. And, um, yeah, but it's good to see that somebody's looking at T-Rex's tiny arms and trying to work out why, apart from being kind of funny looking, what use they have, Mark. So, yeah, that's my first story, T-Rex's tiny arms. You know we're both a bit besotted by dinosaurs, but you are literally like, you know, thinking about them all the time, aren't you, Brendan? Dinosaurs just... It's, 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 it's been rubbed off. On to me by Belinda, um, my associate vet at work, who is absolutely dinosaur crazy. And um, I know she'll be saying, gee, you're mentioning me again. Well, we are. Um, you know, and she had her she had a birthday party, which, Belinda, I didn't get an invite <laughs> to. I didn't see an invite. Thank you very much. Um, and apparently she um, was going to invite me but didn't. And my one of my nurses managed to get there the others didn't manage to get there and took a little video and her the entertainment was um a huge t-rex i think it was she'll probably correct me when i get to work tomorrow um um I'm at one of those robo you know mechanical robotronic um type um t-rex so a person mechatronic um so a person inside a, a, a t-rex um um, and it looked pretty impressive um, until she told me that um, the guy who does the T-Rex, um, he, his part-time job, uh, his other part-time job is a stripper apparently. <laughs> so, so yes, so I didn't get an invite. Um, I don't think I did and um, I would have enjoyed watching a T-Rex at um, Belinda's birthday party. So there you go. That's that's the background of why I, um, why I tend to look out for dinosaur stories because they're pretty cool, aren't they? And uh, that leads me on to our second story, Brendan. Um, the uh, the and you know I've already touched on you know, the fungal obsession I have. Um, and this story uh, from the Mother Nature Network talks about um, well, citizen science. It talks about uh, um, mushrooms, and it talks about um, bees. One of my other favourite topics. Um, and I do think that um, the end of civilization as we know it will be signalled by the uh, end of um, bees fertilising our uh, feed plants. Um, so they are pretty focal, you know, um, part of the ecosystem in which we live. Um, and old mate, old mate Paul, um, he is, <laughs> he's, I don't, this is just amazing. He's the owner of a mushroom mercantile in Washington. And in 1984, he made the observation that bees were attending um, 
and drinking the droplets at the end of various mycelia attached to some of the funguses he, he was growing. Um, so the branching fibres, the root-like structures that look like cobwebs, there were droplets oozing from these and the bees were eating, drinking it, collecting it. Anyway, he just um, he wondered, you know, why they might do that. Um, and as time has gone on and we've had uh, a number of... Um, um, issues with bees, colony collapse disorder, a whole bunch of uh, parasites causing problems from He formed the opinion that maybe um, these uh, uh, fungal extracts could save the bees, could help the bees. Um, and he did quite, and you could imagine all the phone calls he was making to various researchers, which would have gone, yes, mate, we'll get back to you later. Um, but eventually in 2014, he got on to um, Steve Shepard at Washington State University and he paid attention. So that Steve went on to do some experiments where he uh, had colonies of bees and some of them obviously got the uh, mushroom extract and others did not. And he demonstrated that um, particularly the famous deformed wing virus, um, the bees that were exposed to the mycelium extract um, made a huge difference um, to the incidence of the disease. They It did actually... As uh, um, as our fam- uh, my, my mycology mercantile person decided, um, they, they decided it, they, it, um, it provided a significant pr- protection, um, a, a forty-four-fold decrease um, in the field when they were fed these extracts, um, and this virus is particularly useful because the evidence of it, you know, they can see the deformed wings, so they can make a very significant um, assessment of how it's helping, but. Other experiments showed that the, there were other viruses which um, the uh, mushrooms protected for. So this is uh, an excellent story. Anything that protects bees, I think, is a, uh, a wonderful thing. Um, Stamets is uh, designed a 3D printer um, that he's going to uh, um, sell, although he does stay down the bottom. We had a bit of a laugh about this, Brendan. He, uh, he isn't in it for the money. But he is going to sell the 3D printed feeder that delivers the extract to wild bees. Um, on He's going to sell that on a subscription-based service for the extract um, through his website, Fungi Perfecti. <laughs> and what a wonderful website it is, Mark, Fungi Perfecti. Um, and on the front page of that, he's, there he is in his, in his beanie there with a very phallic-looking mushroom that he has one hand resting on. I, I don't know whether you saw that, Mark, but have a look at that. And, yeah, he's, 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 he's an amazing person. The, his, his biography is incredible. And all the books he's written, Mark, I'm not surprised. I'd be surprised if you didn't have any of his books, Mark. Do you have any of his books? Do you have one of his books? I don't, books? Yeah, but they're, they're, I literally am so excited. Excited to see someone so so interested. I, th- and I think you should be ordering. I think you should be ordering mycelium running. How mushrooms can help save the world, um, which is his 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 showcase book. There, Mark. It's, this book is a manual for the mycological rescue of the planet. Mark, you need to get this one. It's setting the stage for the myco restoration revolution. <laughs> I'm reading direct from the um, – I've, I've just ordered it. $35 US, Mark. I think it's a review. Um, it's we're going to have to do a review of it. I think we're going to have to review it now um, because mycelium running marks the dawn of a new era, the use of mycelial membranes for ecological health, Mark. So eat mushrooms. Yeah, now, I must admit we do eat a lot of mushrooms in our household and maybe that's um, affected me in ways that shouldn't um, be um, my brain being affected, Mark. So, yeah, so no, but it, I, I'd love that website um um all jokes aside um it is a very good website and that story yeah i, I it's fascinating these some of these studies aren't they they're amazing and um why people manage to um think up these little tests and and re- and think me yeah, maybe maybe the little extract there is um helping the bees and then devise a little experiment there it's um it's great. So good on him, Mark. Good on him. And, um, yeah, we'll have to review his book, Mark, um, in the near future once we get Paul Stamets' 
book out soon. And I think the one you should order is Growing Gourmet and Medicinal Mushrooms, Mark. I think that's the one for you of his list of books. Our next and our last news story, because we've been prattling on for a while, Mark, is a is a very important one, and it, it and it sort of introduces leaps into our main story this week, doesn't it, Mark? And that is the Australian Museum Frog Count Frog ID Week is on again. It's an annual event here in Australia, and it, it's great. They have tens of thousands, I think, of of people who join. Join the um, join up with this to help, and um, you can join up on the website, which is frogid.net.au, and we'll link to that uh, at our um, website, vetgurus.com. But the great thing is, you can download an Android or Apple app for it, um, the Frog ID app, and it's fantastic. And you, you're going to run through how that works, and basically, it's Shazam for frogs, isn't it? You um, you hold up the um, the little um, app and, and and click record and you record the sound of the frog and then you can send that to the Australian Museum which runs the Frog ID Week which the whole aim of that is to it's Australia's biggest frog count um, and which goes on between the 9th and the 18th of November 2018 this year and um, yeah do you want to talk about the app a little bit Mark before we jump into our, our main story? For sure Brendan it's a um, it's an I can't sing its praises highly enough. And Jody, who um, uh, is the researcher who organised this at the Australian Museum, she's done an outstanding job to uh, recruit a significant number of citizen scientists so that she can accumulate um, real-time data about uh, where frogs are. And because they do call, um, it does provide a, an, a unique circumstance where people can use their smartphone to collect these calls and it doesn't it is a little bit like shazam but you don't get the immediate answer but the amount of information there that does help you identify these frogs um, with a huge database of um of uh, recorded calls that you can listen back um, but there is that process of recording those calls sending them off to the museum having them identified and then those calls are uh, you know collated into distribution maps and it's um really interesting that uh, um, that the distribution maps are developed by large large numbers of people contributing to frog ID not necessarily matching the traditional um, distribution maps that uh, we understand from you know scientific collections so it is a an exceptional app um, it uh, contributes significantly to science, and I love mine, Brendan. And I just checked on my phone, and I do have the um, app on my phone, which um, has just updated itself. And, yeah, it's such a beautiful-looking app too. So it's not just recording the, the actual sounds of the frog, but it has some fantastic – a little da- a database there of all the um, Australian – Is it? does it have New Zealand frogs as well, Mark? No, just Australian. Just Australian frogs, and it's and you can click on any of the frogs, and it will tell you when the call-in period of them is, a scientific name, um, lot description of them, habitats, and then the obvious one, the distribution, which was the whole idea of the Frog ID app, and breeding biology and similar species. So it's 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 fantastic, isn't it? It reminds me a lot about the spider, Spidentify, Mark, that one that we reviewed um, a while ago by our good friend Alan Henderson, um, which is a fantastic. ID um, app for spiders, Mark. Yeah, so that I haven't, I haven't yeah, had, get onto it. I haven't had nearly as much success with the spider calls, though, Brendan. Um, no, well, you, uh, you're not turning the uh, microphone up um, enough, or you're probably smoking too much of your magic mushrooms, Mark. Before, or maybe I am, um, because I can hear them quite readily. Um, we're going to jump into our main topic, oh, before, which is before, 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 yes. Oh, yes, you wanted to talk about a very um, nice email. Shout out. Shout out from the Vet Gurus to Riley Grillish, um, a uh, first-year uh, vet med student in Nebraska, in the st- a state in the state. We knew that was a state in the central U.S., uh, Riley. Um, and so um, we, it, for, there's two things I wanted to say about this email. The first one is that we get such a buzz out of getting emails from all around the world, and um, and it's um, the buzz is not just because we're connected. It's because people 
send us such interesting, insightful questions or comments or even just thoughts. Um, and it just getting a different perspective from all around the world where, um, you know, it's a bit of an echo chamber here with Brendan and I, and we keep telling each other the same stories. And so um, to, to hear uh, different perspectives from other people who are interested in the same topics as us um, from all around the world is a real, well, buzz. It's a highlight of my week. Um, and this one in particular caught my eye because um, it was a suggestion for a future topic. And I think it is one that we'll uh, take on a little bit more. Um, it specifically asks, what would we say about the role of the veterinary profession in responding to climate change and biodiversity loss? Um, and I look... Um, Riley says that I know there's not much maybe to be done in small animal clinics aside from educating clients about exotic pets, keeping their animals healthy um, and uh, and making sure they're safe in changing and warming weather conditions. But I think there's a whole lot more that we can um, proactively do as uh, veterinarians in this space. And um, I wanted to just shout out saying that's just a um, an excellent idea for a topic. And I think there's a lot of things we can talk about. So we've put that into the folder um, to research extensively and talk about knowledgeably in the next few weeks. Yes, thank you for that, Riley. And it was, yeah, it was a lovely email and great to hear from, great to hear from all our listeners or any of our listeners that managed to reach out to us. That's great. So, yeah, our topic this week, Mark, is basic amphibian care. So it follows on from the Frog ID and Frog Watch, and that is we're going to talk about the basic care of our little froggy friends, so basic husbandry for amphibians. And I don't think we've covered amphibians as a as a main topic before, Mark. So, um, And you were just mentioning off air that you do have several froggies at home that you care for, so this topic is right up your street, Mark. So let's start off with just the basics of enclosure setup and let's concentrate on, Mark, what would you say to a client who comes in and says, here's a little green tree frog, um, What do I? how do I look after it? What enclosure do I put it into? Well, Brendan, 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 it is a, um, it's the, it, it, um, one of the things about, uh, the, the amphibians, particularly my frogs, is that they do provide an example of the, the dilemma of enclosure design that, um, on the one hand, it, in the, our hospital, we would normally house our, um, our, you know, frogs that come in in a, a plastic container, um, uh, we'd have some air holes drilled in it. It would be in a um, in a, uh, um, a heated enclosure in one of our reptile closures. We would put it in, um, and uh, we would set it up with some um, sterile paper towels. We'd scrunch one up at one end and soak it fairly well. Um, we'd uh, um, lay one on the bottom and make sure it was damp, um, and then we'd have a pop, a little bit of plastic pipe to provide a refuge and. Obviously, that uh, that uh, serves the purpose of the hospital; that it's all very easily quarantined. But um, at home, I I go berserk for the um, the natural environment, and we have a number of um, what the first thing that we make sure is that we've got a little bit of a. Uh, humidity gradient um, there's water in the enclosure um, and uh, then we have a pump that moves the water through a waterfall um, and that creates a relatively high humidity area at one end the enclosure is well ventilated so um, the other end of the enclosure is mm, significantly less humid um, and um, that provides a you know, an environment where the frogs can choose um, the humidity that they would like. Um, we also uh, um, heat the water in the enclosure, the reservoir of water. Um, and Mark, just sorry, I'll just butt in as usual. Um, I think one of the good points about that is that a lot of clients um, don't realise the importance of that obvious pond or the water area in the enclosure as far as the humidity goes and that's a, as you mentioned the right main reason why you need that um, water in the enclosure because the clients will often say to me anyway that um, oh gee my frog doesn't spend any time in the water he doesn't like to swim in the water or she doesn't like to swim in the water a lot well 
the reason why we have that there is to have that humidity and ideally that humidity gradient, as you mentioned. So you really need to stress to new clients or new owners of our little amphibian friends that the reason why we have that um, little pond area in there is for that humidity. So great point, Mark. Um, now, back to what you were talking about, which is temperature of the um, water. What do you recommend to have that temperature? Well, we said- and why do you keep it warm? Very, very good questions. But, well, I keep it warm because uh, we've got um, uh, green tree frogs uh, and we've got some tropical uh, white-lipped tree frogs. And so they have a preferred body temperature that's um, in the high 20s and uh, and the, our green tree frogs range all over eastern and northern Australia. And so setting the water temperature uh, with, at about 24 degrees um, that and having a heat element at the top provides us with just the same as our reptiles, a, a temperature gradient uh, which allows the frogs to um, maintain their normal metabolism. And I think one of the interesting things about frogs is, like, you know, there's this hierarchy of, um, of species, the uh, uh, phylogeny. Um, and so frogs being, you know, maybe more amphibians being more primitive are often viewed as um, simpler animals and maybe easier to keep. But I find the management of water quality, uh, the multiple gradients we have to manage uh, with respect to temperature and humidity, um, the fact that uh, a warm environment with organic material in it, the substrates we use are going to um, uh if not managed well, they're going to allow the growth of funguses and uh, bacteria to large numbers. So they, I find them much, much more difficult to manage than other species, Brendan. Yes, they can certainly be a challenge to keep clean, can't they, Mark? But for vets who are only dealing with the occasional little froggy, I, I think exactly like you said there, um, just concentrate on the same sort of things we think about with our little reptile friends in that we want to have gradients of all of those things. We want to have the frog access to an appropriate temperature gradient within the enclosure, ideally a humidity gradient, as, as you mentioned there, Mark, and also a lighting gradient as well and a heating gradient there as well. So um, it's the same sort of concepts we spoke about with with all our reptile husbandry that we've, we've um spoken about before in previous podcasts, Mark. Um, and with the lighting, Mark, what do you recommend for the oh, lighting? Brendan, I've got to tell you a quick I have I actually get chills when I talk about lighting. Um, I get really quite upset because many years ago at a conference <laughs> A UPAV conference. Um, I um, volunteered to do a um, a talk on uh, um, metabolic bone disease in frogs, and I was. I know this will come as a complete shock to you, but I was completely disorganised, unprepared, over. Uh, over over <laughs> overdid the information that I had to deliver in the very short period of time, and uh, our good friend Dr. Bog. Bob Donnelly, a mentor and absolute powerhouse in uh, Australian exotic and avian bird, uh, reptile uh, veterinary care. Um, he got out the giant um, crook uh, that all um, uh, uh, people managing uh, conferences, you know, the, the what, what's the job you always do, Brendan, that you sit in the conference and um, chairperson? And he whacked the crook around my neck and dragged me off. So um, I didn't finish talking about all the important things I had to talk about. Um, and now every time I do start to talk about them, I get, uh, you know, a bit upset and, 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 and worried. That's going to happen again. Anyway, um, <laughs> the um, lighting is absolutely critical and the, the, uh, Key reason for that is that most of the time uh, people acquire, our clients acquire metamorphs, frogs that have recently transformed um, from uh, tadpoles into frogs. Um, it's the most difficult part of the life of the frog to get them through. Um, and so uh, people who breed them um, will get them through that and then try to find new homes for them. And so that's the time that people acquire them usually. And they are relatively small. Um, and they grow quickly. Um, and um, as we all know, amongst our exotic pets, where we have that combination, a young animal growing quickly, um, there is the potential for um, 
for serious consequences with respect to the skeleton. And this is exactly what happens um, to many frogs. It's one of the most common reason that we get to see them, um, that they end up with severe skeletal deformities. Um, they uh, um, and, uh, and so an, an appropriate ultraviolet light source um, is really critical. And it's something that most people don't think of uh, because frogs are sort of uh, seen as at least largely nocturnal and uh, their moist skin um, means that exposure to the sun is a little bit uh, potentially dangerous. Um, uh, they're sort of not viewed as animals that might um, sunbake and take advantage of ultraviolet light, but they definitely do, Brendan. And uh, and if you don't have the appropriate lighting, it's very likely that you'll be dealing with frogs that have problems with calcium. Yes. And as we say with the reptiles as well, we want to make sure that they have reasonably good access to the light distance-wise so that the UV light is not too far away from them. Um, what is the, is the distance that you usually recommend to the clients, Mark? How far away from that UV light should the frog be able to sit in order to get adequate UV? Well, <laughs> well I, I usually refer people to our rather excellent podcast on ultraviolet light, but um, I use uh, um, one of the uh, um, fluorescent uh, tubes um, and really the frogs need to be able to get within I'm I'm saying 10 or 15 centimetres once they get much more than about 25 centimetres away um, the diminution of um, the amount of ultraviolet light radiating from that tube um, is such that it's pretty much you know ineffective so um, they've really got to make sure that the frogs can get up uh, you know within that sort of 10 to 15 centimetre distance. Yes, and make sure you specifically mention to your clients not to leave the lights on 24-7 because I, well, I'm, I'm still surprised, but I shouldn't be that I still have clients who will say, oh, I leave the UV light, which gives out a white type light as well as the UV, um, those spe full spectrum or the um, reptile type UV lights that are often used in the frog enclosures. And that's a form of torture, isn't it, Mark? You shouldn't have light on 24-7. So they need a photo period, like all animals. So they need a daytime with white light and they need a nighttime. But I don't know whether you experience it much, Mark, but I have a reasonable number of the amphibian owners who will say that they leave the lights on 24 hours a day because they want the animal to be exposed to more UV do you have clients? It is. That? It's a de yes, definitely the case. Um, and I and I think the key thing to get across there is that the frogs don't need, um, you know, huge amounts of ultraviolet light. They are very effective at, um, at harvesting the light that they are exposed to, and um, and they don't need twenty four seven exposure at all. Um, and so just having that on you know, doing the daylight hours is, is more than adequate to trigger the normal processes of uh, vitamin D synthesis in the skin. Yes. Now, you mentioned the difficulty of cleaning these enclosures because they often have a lot of organic material in there. And there's two things I'd like us to chat about, Mark, there, and that's the actual water or pond area and whether or not you're recommending having a filter, like an aquarium filter in there. And if so, um, um, any comments, general comments on that? And secondly, with changing the water, do you recommend partial water changes or full water changes? And if we do full water changes, how often? My general recommendations to clients, Mark, are that I'd suggest to them that they do do a full water change because they do get fairly grotty and do that as often as required, which might mean every, every week or two. They might get away with every month or so. And I typically do say to them, treat it like an aquarium, that water section of the little um, vivarium for the frog and put a filter in there and try and do water testing, ideally doing water testing and trying to check those levels of pHs and especially the ammonia and the nitrites and nitrates. What What's your general recommendation? Well, it's, it's unsurprising, Brendan, that I'm not only recommending 
that to my clients exactly the same as you've suggested, but that's what I do myself. Um, one of the interesting, one of the things I suppose um, that I really do emphasize is that um, those general principles of aquarium care, where water quality is, you know, the top of the pyramid um, and all health. Uh, um, management flows from um, making sure that you have excellent water quality. The same principles apply to frogs. Um, the only difference I emphasise is that um, the frogs per biomass are much more biologically active. They, um, they do, as you suggest, produce a marked increase than the same biomass of fish. And so you do have to pay a lot of attention to those water changes and uh, water quality because the water will become foul very quickly if you don't. And the other interesting thing about it is that um, the chemicals that do the most damage, those waste products, the ammonia, the uh, nitrates and nitrites, they are not immediately apparent. They can rise to levels that cause problems in perfectly clear water um, and uh, clients look at the water, it's crystal clear, they think they're doing an awesome job and yet their frogs end up with skin disease because <clears throat> those chemicals have risen to dangerous levels and so I think testing is of paramount importance. Yes, I agree totally, Mark. I agree totally. And cleaning-wise, to how, how often would you think, including yourself, would you need to do a complete clean of the whole frog enclosure that at some stage I'm presuming that it just gets so grotty that you just need to do a full, full clean? And if you do need to do that, what do you use? How are you cleaning it? Well, fortunately for us, in this podcast, um, uh, I'm able to refer to one of our, um, our sponsors. Um, we, what I do is strip the um, the vivarium down once every about twelve weeks. Um, take all the furniture out. Um, uh, take it out into uh, the yard and give it a good hose down. Um, rinse it all off. Let it sit in the sun for a while. Um, but then um, I give it a, um, a a gentle scrub. The the cage furniture that is um, that's not alive, the plants and whatnot. Um, I uh, give the branches and the the um, shelters that we use the pots. Um, I give them a gentle scrub with um, F10 and let it sit for a while, um, and then rinse them off again. Um, and so uh, I think that um, that. Uh, there's the two aspects that I always emphasize to my clients that um, physically cleaning those things, um, you know, I often find my clients get all wrapped up in the chemical that they use. Um, and while it's important to choose uh, something that's going to be effective at killing um, pathogens, um, I think it's also a sensible thing to emphasize that Nothing is as, well, it's equally important to have excellent elbow grease. You've got to scrub that dirt away before um, any of the products we use uh, that uh, antiseptic have their effect. Yes, it's physical and chemical uses, <laughs> Mark, with that, with our little supporters there, F10. Yes, um, not that we deliberately wanted to insert a plug there. It just happened to organically, so to speak, um, enter its way into our conversation there, Mark, didn't it? So cleaning, yeah, and it's that balance, isn't it, With especially with a froggy enclosure. It's, it's trying to make that enclosure fun for the froggy and also providing useful furniture in there and hide areas and um, that... Um, organic type material for it and making it not much fun for it um, and having it as a hospital type enclosure mark and very sterile might be easy to clean but that froggy's going to stress out there um, which reminds me with furniture in there mark one of the things that I tend not to recommend that clients keep in these enclosure are those plastic plants mark and I don't know whether you've had them but I've had several frogs over the years that end up for some reason eating those um, fronds of the plastic um, plants and we end up having to open them up or if we're lucky enough we manage to anaesthetise the frog and grab that plastic plant piece that's um, um, in the stomach um, via endoscopy. Have you had any cases? Yeah, like definitely, Brendan. They are indiscriminate once and, you know, they, the, once they become uh, familiar with you, then they they are pretty good at just having a snap as you present some food, um, and so that's great and it's a good interaction. But um, they do end up uh, 
mistaking things and they definitely will um, have a go at, you know, I, I remember distinctly one of the frogs that I had, um, you, we, I had a batch of crickets, we had dusted them, they were in a, uh, a, a tub, they had a, um, uh, um, you know, one of the chopped up carrots that we used to feed the crickets um, and I'm picking them up, feeding them to the frog and sure enough, the frog, one of the frogs jumped into the container with the crickets and missed all the crickets that were in there and swallowed a big chunk of carrot. Um, and, uh, and the same thing happens. We regularly see um, various uh, pieces of cage furniture um, that are indigestible that, uh, and particularly those plastic plants, the ones that you mentioned, um, they, for whatever reason, see them move, think they're something else and ingest them. And, um, and uh, obviously there's no other way to get them out than to um, employ your wonderful endoscopy skills, Brendan. So what are you recommending then for the cage furniture in there, Mark, if we aren't putting plants in there? What sort of products or organic and or um, artificial um, do you reckon? Well, I think the key thing to make sure if you're using, in, in my enclosure, I'm pretty lucky that I do have uh, a, a collection of pot plants that are arranged. Um, there's some um, uh, hollow logs um, that uh, uh, the frogs love to get into. Um, and uh, and the, the plants in particular, the, the pot plants, we've selected plants that it's difficult for the frogs to get their mouth around various bromeliads, wide-leafed spaths and things like that. But certainly pay, not so much just paying attention to something that the frogs can fit into their mouth. And so many of those uh um, plastic plants are, um, you know, made up of uh, things that the, the leaves are going to break off or sections have been plugged together and the frog can grab them and separate them. So really being, and even things like uh, gravel, um, uh, we know that our axolotls frequently um, uh, will snap up some um, substrate from their aquariums and our frogs are much the same. If they... Uh, um, get access to the appropriate size stones, then um, they almost invariably will ingest them. So size is the thing I talk about with cage furniture. It's got to be uh, big enough that the frog can't fit it in its mouth, Brendan. Yes, yes. The The other product that I sometimes, or products that I sometimes recommend to clients are the, the plastic mock um, logs and mock um, branches and those sorts of things you know visually i suppose to the humans anyway they they do a little bit more appealing whether or not they are to the froggy and they're certainly easy to clean but otherwise yeah natural branches and that and throwing and logs and throwing them out after every two or three months is what i generally recommend if they are using natural wooden sort of branches and um, logs for the enclosure mark and speaking of ingesting mark we should jump on to diet for our froggies so what do you feed your froggies what's a good diet for most of these frogs in captivity well it's no surprise brendan that a good diet is a varied one um i think one of the problems that we find is that uh is that various prey animals um might be relatively easy for um, clients to access through pet stores or suppliers um but um, if you stick at, you know, just say crickets, for example, um, then uh, the likelihood that you have inappropriate calcium or um, they're not dusted properly or they haven't been fed properly and they have nutritional problems of their own, um, they become increasingly likely when you use a single species. So um, for these predatory insectivorous um uh, frogs in particular. Um, we use a variety of insects. The um, typical cultured ones, we um, tend to stick with crickets and uh, um, the wood roaches we have here in Australia, um, as well as um, seasonally we'll add um, uh, um, uh, silkworms, um, earthworms when they're av available. We tend to avoid using the most common earthworm that's freely available here in Australia, the compost um, earthworm, uh, they are pretty irritant when prey grab hold of those and um, and so we tend to avoid those. But um, when I'm doing the gardening and I find one in the bottom of one of the pots, then uh, we will uh, offer it to the frogs. They're an excellent um, source of calcium and, um, and uh, yeah, so a balance of different species of prey items, Brendan. 
Yes, variety is the key, isn't it, Mark? And I, I suggest, suggest to the clients that they also offer any, yeah, any little bugs and invertebrates, so moths and spiders and beetles and um, yeah, anything they can get out there in the backyard. So I think that's the key. And then a multivitamin um, as well as a vitamin D and calcium. The multivitamin, there are a couple of generic sort of multivitamins, mainly for reptiles that you can purchase in Australia that um, are reasonably well suited for amphibians as well. And um, I usually recommend once a week or so that they sprinkle or dip some of the um, food items into that to give them a bit of um, the vitamins that they may be missing out if the diet's not broad enough, Mark. And yeah, we see lots of Lots and lots of metabolic bone disease, the calcium vitamin D deficiencies in our in our froggies, and I'm sure you're the same, Mark. And and that's usually the classic combination that we think of. So the inappropriate diet and or the inappropriate light in with them, Mark. So how do you approach treating those? I know we're getting off the husbandry, but um, onto one of the common conditions we see in them, Mark. But do you find treatment rewarding for those? And how do you get them back on track? Well, it's uh, um. Very, very similar to the stuff that we've talked about previously with reptiles, that um, if we have a mildly affected animal, um, and and sometimes they can, you know, even have some deviation of the long bones, um, uh, if we treat those animals with, uh, you know, appropriate care, we um, keep them pain-free, we supplement them with uh, calcium parenterally, um, then they often um, return to normal strength and um, and even though they might have some minor deviations in the bone, min- minor valgus deformities, um, they they can do quite well in captivity. But I think one of the things about metabolic bone disease that um, that uh, more and more has come to my mind is that um, anything but relatively mild problems really has um, a significant effect on the quality of life of um, those animals, whether they be amphibians, reptiles, or birds, um, and um, and they don't necessarily display that compromise to their quality of life um, in such a way that it's apparent to their their carers and owners. Um, and I'm, it's very often the case that we're talking about those quality of life issues. And if there's significant changes, significant um, bony issues, then uh, we're often thinking about not going ahead with those animals at all and considering humane euthanasia. Yes, it's it's um, depressing, isn't it, with some of those where you have those really bendy bones and even the bendy, the rubbery mandible that we see, on, or I certainly see on them, Mark. So, yeah, they can be frustrating. And if only those clients had come to see us when they first purchased that little froggy and we got them on track early on rather than a few months down the track when um, the animals vastly compromised their mark, yeah. So, yes, so... Um, well, we've just about covered the basics of um, care of frogs, but um, we'll have to spend a few more podcasts getting into the conditions we see in our amphibian friends, shouldn't we, Mark? And um, So how many have you got at the moment, Mark? Have you frogs oh, we've got uh, uh, six of the green tree frogs and two of the white-lipped tree frogs. Excellent. I'll have to come and... Um, Come and view them and, and make sure that you're not lying with all this um, talk about good husbandry. No, I definitely um, need you to come and check up, Brendan. And check out the um, water quality with your animals. And, of course, sample some of your magic mushrooms, Mark. Um, we'll have to make a few recipes from our book from our new friend, Mycelium Running Fungi, Fungi Perfecti. Mark, that's the place to go. Well, thank you all for listening and hanging in there till the end of the the podcast. I think it's time for us to go. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.